Hello, everyone. Turn your light bulbs on. Welcome back to another episode of Lightbulb Talks, a part of the SpaceCast network of podcasts, a variety of podcasts that discuss technology that all take place on a live format, such as Twitter Spaces or Clubhouse. Obviously, um, we're here on Twitter Spaces tonight. And uh, my name is Brady Dale. I am the host of Lightbulb Talks. Uh, I am a reporter who covers cryptocurrency, and I like to think about uh, a different future for the web. And that will be the topic of conversation tonight, but we'll get to that. But today was a great day for (laughs) emotions in crypto and thinking about emotions in crypto, because today uh, news came out that Shapeshift had uh, decided to decentralize this entire company. And if you all don't know about Shapeshift, it's this, um, it's, it started as this permissionless trading platform. Uh, it was crazy if you used it back in the day. It started in 2014. I think I first used it in 2017. You know, you could just, um, you could tell it a wallet that had some sort of cryptocurrency you wanted to trade. You could tell it a wallet that you wanted the other cryptocurrency to show up in. And it would give you an address to send whatever amount you wanted to and it'd give you a price. And, uh, and then once you had sent the promised crypto, it would shoot it off to another, uh, to, to whatever wallet you designated. And this was, this was a crazy experience, even in 2017, because like, um, you, you didn't have to log into anything, you know, you just did it and it, you know, it took a cut. That's how it made its money. But, um, and it was just done, you know, I remember doing this and I was like, seriously, that's, that's how that worked. And, and, you know, they eventually got into regulatory trouble for that. So, uh, it didn't, you know, the fun didn't last. And then Shapeshift, you know, it was founded by this guy, Eric Voorhees, who's kind of a visionary, extremely ideological guy, super, super libertarian. I definitely don't agree with him on a lot of things, but I appreciate his, you know, passion for his viewpoint. And, um, and he really was trying to stay true to his values. Eventually, they had to, you know, sort of follow the rules, and they found some ways to, like, move around the rules. And then they just decided that uh, they were going to decentralize the entire company, which, which means also they're shutting the thing down. They're, they're giving out the tokens that they have to tons of people who've used their product in the past and a ton of people who've used related products in the past. Um, and, uh, and those folks have control over all of the assets and to take it. Anywhere from four months to a year. It sounds going to take more like six months is probably the realistic time frame. But the reason why I think this is a great topic for like the emotional conversation is just like, what's it like for these folks who built this thing that they cared about to just turn it over to potentially thousands of people that they don't, they don't know. I mean, the number, the number of people who potentially get this airdrop is about a million people probably won't be that many, but you know, it's just, I don't know. I, when I think about, you know, I just know founders care a lot about these things they started and to just, and to just get kind of, well, they're not giving it away. They're getting a lot out of it, but to just turn it over suddenly, it just seems stunning. And, you know, I asked Eric Voorhees about this when we talked and he said he felt great about it, but you know, folks have their spin on things. And then there was a Twitter spaces about it today. Another person asking the same question. And, and they both, both of the co-founders who were on there, Eric and I can't remember his co-founder's name, talked about how, you know, they feel like, they've had less and less control over the thing as more people have gotten involved over time. And so it just feels like a natural part of the process, but I just can't help but feel like there is deeper emotions going on there for them and also for everyone else involved. And the the thing I would really like to do, so there's my call and, you know, I don't know how big our audience is in this yet. uh, But I would love to do one of these sessions with some employees at Shapeshift 
to talk about how they felt about this whole transition. And that probably won't happen this week or next week, but you know, maybe sometime a few months down the road, that's a conversation that we could have. And, and honestly, you know, knowing how that team is, I don't even think that they would mind. They probably would prefer not to do it, you know, <laughs> tomorrow. But if folks who are at Shapeshifter listen, listen to this and would like to have that conversation and want to reach out, we can negotiate time. And if you know people who are there, you could tell about this. That would be cool, too. Um, but anyway, so that is that is my opening for tonight. It has nothing to do with our broader conversation other than perhaps the whole notion of decentralization, uh, which is maybe also a debatable topic. But, you know, we're here tonight. Um, to talk to Mark Nadal, who, and I might have said his name wrong, so or, yeah, we'll, we'll find out. But uh, he's the founder of, uh, he's the creator of this database called Gun, which is a, uh, you know, we talked about it before, it's sort of a, it's kind of a very composable brain that lets a, a lot of different applications run on top of it, and it and it functions in a decentralized way. You know, last night, uh, I had Ash Egan on, a new VC, well, he's not a new VC, but he's, he's, a, he's new to running his own VC firm in this space. And we were having a little bit of a back and forth about what does the decentralized web even mean at this point? And of course, that was a very crypto centric conversation. You know, Mark uh, considers himself one of the OGs of, uh, of the decentralized web and is very much of the school that is not really related to the cryptocurrency industry. And that's why I thought he'd be an interesting person to talk to, because I'm pretty interested in this decentralization topic. But you know, as someone who covers crypto, I'm sort of bound by that viewpoint. Um, so, uh, yeah, he and I had a, a long conversation, I don't know, a couple months ago, you know, kind of private. Um, uh, and, uh, we talked about a bunch of interesting stuff and I said, you know, we should maybe take the conversation public. He was game to do it. And so that is happening tonight. So, um, let me welcome Mark on now. Hello. Can you hear me? Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, we've got you. We've got you. How's it going? Doing great. I'm actually down in San Diego for the week at La Jolla Cove. So it's a beautiful sunny day and I'm ready to talk about the merits and the lack of merits of blockchain. So all right, great. Um, amazing. Um, well, and I am at night in a just ridiculously hot New York City. So we're in a, a really different setting, but uh, but it should be cool. Well, cool. Uh, thanks for coming and welcome. Um, you know, I was just going over some of the stuff that we talked about and trying to decide uh, what the right place to start with. Let me ask you a weird opening question, actually, uh, and see if and if, if you don't feel you have a great answer to this, we'll, we'll move on to other ones. But, you know, when we talked, one of the things, a sort of a recurring theme in our conversation was, uh, you know, you talked about being a part of this kind of um, sort of what you refer to as just sort of the, the, the traditional decentralized web or, or D-Web community um, that existed sort of prior to the crypto boom or sort of came up, you know, on its own, unrelated to it. Um, but you also said a bunch of times that you felt like you've always been controversial even within that group. So, like, w- how would you define what makes you controversial even in your own tribe? Yes. So one of the first things that people pushed was this idea of immutability. And Uh immutability, not being able to change data, is very important, but its use case is reserved to archival processes. It's not the sort of thing you're going to decentralize Twitter or Uber with. And um, most of the other protocols in the D-Web space were based on immutability, which makes them difficult to scale in contrast to um, the algorithms I've implemented that allow you to change data on the fly and do it really fast. Mm-hmm. And that's also in contrast to blockchain, um, which of course has immutability baked into it. Although 
there is some misunderstanding around the immutability in in Bitcoin and blockchain because that relates to um, the Merkle tree, not necessarily to the data in Bitcoin. Yeah, totally. Yeah, people get confused about that a lot. Well, just and just on that point, I mean, just to sort of, I guess, underscore, and you couldn't have, I'm sure when you were having these arguments, you couldn't have known kind of how right you would be. But like, it's been interesting in the last few years, you know, particularly with since the rise of Snapchat, uh, how much, and, and I actually think this is really great. And as a privacy fan, you probably agree too. More and more people are getting comfortable and embracing uh, doing things on the internet that disappear. Uh, it turns out to be that's pretty appealing. And we, I mean, we can all agree that there are certain things that would be great to ha- never have go away. And immutability is fantastic for those. But but it's also pretty great to have an internet that like you know lets you use a thing for as long as the world probably needs it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have all my signal chats, for example, set to like, just, you know, go away at least within a week. I usually try to go earlier, but people are like, that's crazy. So, um, yeah, I remember on Mr. Robot there on like one second, I was just like, that's not doable. Like, why does, why does anyone have that? Um, but so, so that's a good opening. I remember when we talked, you know, you kind of, so, so do this for us again, if you could, you know, take us back in time. I, I feel like you said there was kind of a, a groundswell of kind of leaders in this space who came together in like, I think you said around 2013. So if that's wrong, you know, correct my dates, but um, take us back to that moment, who they were and kind of like what that conversation was like and, and, and what folks, what the different facets, different folks in that world were interested in. Yeah, almost 2013 is a good number. It was more the end of 2014 that there was a JavaScript conference in Oakland and a bunch of people showed up saying that they're building JavaScript databases, which is a little bit absurd because JavaScript is not a good language to implement these things in. And not only was there a bunch of JavaScript databases, we were all doing it decentralized. So we had this little get-together called Hash the Planet at the end of 2014 that had um, founders of IPFS, my protocol, Gun, um, Secure Scuttlebutt, um, even the... um, a DAT team, which is now renamed to, to I think, Hyper or Hyper Protocol, um, some core OS people, and James Halliday, who is very well known in the JavaScript community for writing a ton of the modules. So it was a pretty, pretty coincidental, serendipitous get-together. Oh, and for Ross of WebTorrent, which you might have heard about recently with the Wormhole app that he's been um, pushing out the door. So, yeah, a whole ton of JavaScript decentralized people show up. Didn't you say um, at the start of the project? Wasn't Juan, yeah. Juan, Benet, Juan Benet around at that time, too? Or no? Yeah, for IPFS. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, sorry, keep so going. So, that's kind of what, yeah, what uh, in my timeline, I, I kind of classify as the beginning of the re decentralization of the web in contrast to, you know, the 90s <laughs> where the web was supposed to be decentralized in the first place. And everybody else was taking it from this approach of using um, immutability, uh, append-only um, logs, mm-hmm. which did match much more of a, a blockchain model. And I was the only one there saying, okay, that's great, but it, it doesn't scale. It doesn't work for the majority of the use cases out there. And append-only just means that you can just add things. Like, uh, you know, if you imagine a list, you can only add to the list. The list just keeps growing or, or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, and why doesn't it scale? Okay. So if you're trying to order an Uber 
on this decentralized web. Mm-hmm. And that Uber driver is updating their GPS coordinates hundreds of times per second. First of all, the way that most of these systems are set up is you have to look up the data by its, you can think of it as its signature, its hash. Mm-hmm. Um, so that means you have to know the signature uh, specifically. It's actually a hash, but I think it's easy for non-technical people to to think of it as being a type of signature. Um, you have to know that hash ahead of time. Um, so how you, <laughs> you'd have to do that hundreds of times per second. Uh, so that doesn't work out. Um, you instead need and it'd be better if that data you could subscribe to the GPS coordinates of the driver by their public key um, or by their name or by some URL, doesn't really matter, some name, and then be getting real-time updates as it's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, So immutability has this issue where uh, the discovery process of changed data um, doesn't propagate fast enough for certain use cases. And that use case includes something as simple as a Google index. Um, Google searches update, even if it's not, um, you know, hundreds of times per second, it's updating daily, weekly, monthly, and it's just much more efficient to have that as part of the protocol to handle rather than trying to build it on top. And is is the immutability slow just because if you're going to make something really permanent, you have to do a bunch of operations on it that are that just bog it down? I mean, is that why it just it's just hard to make things immutable? Is is that re- the reason it's slow? So let's, let's take the Google index example. Each time we wind up changing the first page search result, it produces a new hash. Uh-huh. And so now we have to point everybody to this new hash. So there's this, and then the old hash and the old data is still saved, mm-hmm. but we might've only changed one character. Imagine you, you edited a tweet. Oh, whoops, you can't. Uh, imagine you edited a tweet with you know, one character, one, one letter. Um, you still have the whole old history. And so that piles up over time when it's not always needed. Uh-huh. Sometimes it's needed. And you can do that in um, protocols that support immutability. You just say immutability is being able to change data. You just record things to a, um, a table where you have every historical change. So coming back to, to the point is, yeah, each time we update the search result, for something. We have the old records that we um, have to compress or garbage collect or deal with somewhere. And we have to tell people um, how to get the new thing. And that's more the fundamental problem is you just fundamentally cannot get around that problem unless you're using some other system not built on immutability. So all of these protocols that are built on that concept have this discovery problem um, that requires something outside of their system. And that's not a good way to start a revolution yeah. on the web is to start with something that requires something else. Then you get centralization again. And just for folks who um, who are listening and maybe some of these concepts aren't familiar with, you know, we, we get a lot of folks who come into crypto because they're interested in money, not necessarily because they're interested in cryptography, but cryptography is, is really important to the space. Um, and when Mark talks about a hash, what he means is, uh, just in case you don't know, is in cryptography, you can take any set of data and you can, you know, run an algorithm over it and it'll generate a unique string, you know, and, and a unique number, let's say that will only correspond to that set of data, you know, using that algorithm. And it's a great way to create an ID for something in a lot of use cases. Um, but it's also an extra step and it's, you know, it's, it's computationally, uh, expensive and, you know, for other reasons that Mark just mentioned, um, maybe isn't 
always worth doing every time, but is, is a part of the reason why cryptocurrency works and a part of the reason why lots of things that you use online works. But that's what he means by a hash, just in case um, folks don't know. So, and w- while I'm pausing also, just we have a few people joining us, um, you know, welcome, glad to have you guys here. The way the light bulb talks usually work is uh, I and my guests talk for a while, whatever seems appropriate. Then I'll, usually I don't open it up until, you know, t- towards the end of the conversation, would love to have folks there. Just in case you've never been a part of any of these before, um, this is being recorded, um, so it gets republished uh, on um, on the Spacecast podcasts usually within a day or two, uh, and that's a podcast that it, there's a number of hosts on. I'm one of them, and we do these live conversations like this one, usually about technology. What came out of that? So you guys had this conversation. You sort of disagree with everybody about one thing, but like you know, all these minds meet and they generally agree on this idea of decentralized databases. Like what, what happened there and what happened next and sort of like, what's the relate, how, how did you guys work together or battle? I don't know, you know, from then on, but like, what's the next part of that story? As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I was a little bit naive. I thought that since we all have a very similar values goal, that we should all work together. But I was kind of missing the point that um, we're actually all competitors in the protocol space. And while um, decentralization is about having um, as many different things as possible, if you look in the 90s, you had FTP, you had Gopher, you had HTTP, you had Waze, you had a bunch of different protocols back then. And Sure, we occasionally use FTP still today, um, but a lot of people probably don't even know what FTP is, and that's fine. You don't need to know any of that. The point is HTTP, the web, www, one, and it is what the vast majority of everything uses. And while I think each protocol nowadays will still be around, I do think, and I and I, this is disagreeing with some of the other um, founders of the other protocol, I do think that you're going to have a Pareto rule, which is you know, 80% of the future of the internet is going to be running on only one of our protocols. And then maybe 10% is running off of another protocol and then 5% off of that. It's going to be very strongly asymptomatically uh, slanted. I think you're, you know, I don't know about you. I <laughs> that's one of the most frustrating things about the world to me. I like, I just, always <laughs> like, there's, there's some other things. Can't like, we just spread out across the weird things like slightly more. Um, but that is not, that is not in fact how the world works. Um, you know, I didn't, it's funny. I didn't, and to, to your point, 
Um, I didn't think about this as a part of our conversation until, until you just said that. I don't, I don't know why. I guess I write so many things. It's hard for me to keep track of what I've written, but you know, I did an op-ed, um, this Monday on, um, that, uh, was all about how one of the ideas that I really like for the decentralized web and for this web three idea. And I, I don't think we've talked about this. So I'm curious about what your thought on it is, um, is this concept of a user, logging into the internet itself as opposed to logging into a website so that once you sort of had fired up your machine for the day, you could just bounce around between your various apps and, you know, you'd be good to go as opposed to needing to log into each one. And there's, there's a variety of upsides to that. You know, the convenience is one of them, but, um, but also it's, it's more of a kind of a one-to-one relationship if, if it's structured the right way, as opposed to, you know, going through a number of, you know, third parties to sort of authenticate that you're you. Um, I'm curious what you think about that concept. That's kind of a crypto concept, but, but as I was writing it and as, as much as I was advocating for it, I, I was also aware that a part of the problem with it is um, it's hard to imagine a future in which really there is just one internet that you log into. And there's, there, you know, there's all these people who are competing to make single sign-ons right now. So probably it'll be kind of chaos or, Maybe I don't. I don't know if it will. But what's your But what's your take on the single sign-on idea as conceptually? Absolutely agree. We already have something to make this possible today. Actually, a few years ago. So yet another uh, service that provides a single sign-on. And I take it even further. Um, if I'm successful, and we currently have about forty million downloads per month, so I'm hoping that that's momentum towards being successful. That. If I'm successful, the goal is to actually destroy the idea of an application entirely because applications come out of the domain-centric ideology of the web. So let me repeat that again. You have the internet, and then suddenly everybody's like, wow, why don't we fragment the internet into these dot-coms? And that's just a terrible idea because you're supposed to be using the internet, not one particular website. And that's why we got a lot of the problems we have um, today. So my argument is actually no. I want to take away the notion of a domain or an application entirely. So you go somewhere on the internet, and the way I phrased it, of rather than logging into the internet, it's actually that the internet is logging into you, and all of the data that you look at um, and that you process is done locally on your machine in an offline container. So none of it can escape back to the internet. None of it can escape back to Facebook's servers. So logging in is not actually logging into Facebook's website, like you're saying. Um, You're actually having Facebook pass you data, and then you internally render that data and process that data um, without pushing it back to to Facebook. And currently, um, Brave, the browser, is using these types of techniques to do privacy-preserving browser surfing or or searching. They're actually pushing you a little bit of extra data, uh, if I understand it correct. I'm not speaking on behalf of Brave. They're pushing you a little bit of extra data, and then locally on your computer, your computer off in kind of an offline container is filtering for that data and then choosing your, your location or your search term. So that way it's not exposed back 
to um, any other third-party service. You know, careful supporting Brave there. You're totally, uh, that is a totally crypto-powered uh, project there. So, you know, I um, you know, I feel like we're slowly winning you over uh, with that one. So... Um, I have that turned off. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well, yeah, still, but, you know, it wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, uh, wasn't for the crypto. Um, that is a funny thing. Um, we don't need to unpack that right now. Though, I will say if you're listening to this, <laughs> folks... Uh, really, I, I, I don't know. I should, maybe I should make some comment. But just Brave is a better browser. Like, you all should just be using it. It's just, like, it's so much faster. I mean, there's some things that it screws up, and you guys pop over to Chrome. But that is a rare experience. It blows my mind that more people aren't moving over. Everyone who I know who has done it is just like, why have I not been using this? Anyway, whatever. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice experience. It, it strips a lot of the bad crap out. Um, so a thing that – so I'm sure you didn't hear it. It's fine. But, you know, Ash and I talked about this last night. He's a he's a he's been an investor in the space for a long time in, in, in cryptocurrency. But, you know, he has a little bit of a history in sort of the decentralized web chunk of the cryptocurrency world. And I asked him what he kind of thought about that as an investment area. And he was sort of like, I don't even know what the decentralized web honestly means anymore. And I had my idea for that, which I think maybe sort of somewhat squares with yours, though. I mean, what you just said is maybe a couple steps beyond what I, what I said, but how, how do you articulate the notion of this? You sort of just did it, but maybe go a little bit further. Um, how do you articulate the notion of, of the decentralized web for folks who want to conceptualize it? Yeah, let me pull you back to our pre-call meeting a month ago where I described the values of the uh, decentralized movements. So there's three categories. I classify them as crypto, D-Web, and blockchain, where uh-huh. I really like homage to the cypherpunk movements. And the value of crypto is privacy. So think of that category as Signal, Telegram, etc. People are focused on privacy. So you mean, then, this is important is with yep, audiences yep. who find me, you mean cryptography. You're saying cryptography. Correct. There. Yes. yes this is an important distinction. Um, sorry, keep going. Then there is blockchain, and its values are an Ayn Rand libertarian sense of greed. Uh-huh. Strong statement there, but that's no. what oftentimes gets the eyeballs. That's not how it really started, though. Um, it's kind of what it's evolved into. And then finally, there's D-Web. And the values of D-Web is around openness. Yeah. Okay. So I'd say D-Web. What is D-Web? It's about creating inclusive inclusivity and o- open um, applications. And I don't mean open as in spying on you or, or public. I just mean open as in um, be, not having a walled garden. To work with any blockchain application, you have to get inside of their walled garden. You have to pay the gas fees. You have to get the airdrops. And that's not too dissimilar to having to sign up for yet another MySpace, yet another Facebook, yet another Twitter. You have to be in the walled garden, despite the fact that blockchain is, quote, decentralized. It's still another walled garden. And that's not really the case with uh, D-Web. Right. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I um, just, I don't, I don't, uh, while I'm very into crypto and I think it's very cool, I don't mess around with it too often, though I do do it more than most crypto reporters. And tonight, for various reasons, I sort of fired up my Ethereum wallets and was bouncing around between some things tonight and got wildly frustrated with how janky things can be in there and how if you do one thing in the wrong order, you can cost yourself, you know, not a ton of money, but enough. You're just, why did I do that? It's stupid. Anyway, it's frustrating. But 
you know, you can call it Randian. I mean, I think it is Randian on a lot of levels, and there is this level in which it's just kind of there's a, there's a little bit of a greed is good world within crypto that I, and blockchain, which I don't think is wrong. But I also think that there's some realism to it, where you know, like for example, you know, we mentioned Juan Benet earlier. You know, Juan Benet made IPFS, which is this you know big data structure for you know lots of people storing data all over the world, which is, I understand, a decent number of people are using, and it's all free and open. And then he created Filecoin, and Filecoin is a way to, like, give more people a, like, financial incentive to do even more of that. And the and the thinking in the, in the, in the blockchain chunk of the world is if you really want to get enough resources at the table to, to do this, to do the work that's needed to create an internet that's really powerful and really interesting and that also empowers people more um you've got to some people need to get paid for adding resources to that which doesn't seem crazy to me um but i'm curious about your your take boom 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 okay we come into the controversy more okay two points first just on the blockchain side uh, and then I'll get back to the, the original point is that there is no application there's no banking app in the top hundred uh, most popular websites so the, the usability, how often you're going to use payments, is so rare um, that the rest of the internet is really about YouTube and cat videos and sharing and GPS coordinates. So first of all, just the use case for payments, blockchain, is an extraordinarily tiny, if not negligible, ho, 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 subset of the total internet's uh, use case. Well, okay, Second. I realize what we were uh, we were going to define the decentralized web, but I, but let's okay. put a pin in this payments thing as being a small use case because I think you're completely wrong on that. But um, and I, we can I can articulate as to why I think you're completely wrong. But okay, sorry, keep going, and we will get back to this defining the decentralized web. Second. Have you heard of a thing called BitTorrent? It was doing up to 40% of the world's traffic before Google got there. And it wasn't until about 2011 that Google and then later on Netflix surpassed. We're talking about 40% of the world's traffic before we had solid state drives, before we had those nice fast hard drives. That's 2008. 40% of the world's traffic running off of volunteer peers on terrible hardware. No, it's true. And, and the company behind it never it. made money. But um, yes, true. True. Totally. Well, yes. that's going back to the payments. What is the goal here? So if we're talking about needing resources to achieve global scale, no, I'm going to pull Richard Hendricks on you, man. Okay. Yeah. Come at me, right, bro. We have enough cell phones and goodness refrigerators out there to power all of the internet by the people for the people and of the people. Payments is nice. Payments is great. It needs to be in there, but it's not how you make this transformation. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so wait, define the D-Web then. De- uh, I'd, I'd say any application that's focused on interoperability, openness, and inclusivity. Not creating walled gardens. And help us, like, come back. I do want to have this fight about payments, but I also... You, <laughs> I'm baiting you on multiple fronts, making I, you choose. <laughs> I, but no, but this thing you said about us not having domains... And so I'm with you. I mean, I'm not against you at all. I just what I'm where I'm going is I'm trying to I'm trying to picture this. Right. So um, so if you don't have if if you if you can't say, like, I have an intention, I want to be on a social network right now. The thing that's nice about domains is you can just be like, that means I type in Facebook or that means I type in Twitter. And that is my social experience. Right. If, If you take if you strip out that notion of like 
a location for the activity. And it's just this data that you have locally and like, what's the experience look like? And, and, and what does the user do when they want to see the thing they want to see, you know, and how does that work with our brains, you know? Yeah. All right. So three things on this first, um, a, a really concrete dive into this is the proposal I do for Twitter blue sky or the second one listed in Twitter's blue sky, um, doc. So please, if you guys want to hear what I'm talking about and see more concrete examples, go check out my Twitter blue sky. I will try uh, to remember to link that in our show notes. I probably won't, but I'll, I'll try to remember to. No yeah. worry. So second, uh, to give you a quick summary, um, and this is a terrible analogy, and it's using terrible existing technology, so don't, don't hate the messenger. Um, we're able to go to pretty much any website and view a PDF or view an HTML page. We're able to pretty much go to any website and view an image or you know, a JPEG, a video, whether it's MP4 or some other format. So my argument about what the open web looks like is... You, it's a terrible analogy, but you're kind of just surfing data out there, and your browser has a bunch of extensions that detect what formats the data is. So um, there might be all of your friends that are updating posts to their Ethereum public key or something like that. They're saying, hey, I got a post, I said something. And they're not they don't have to be using the same application like Twitter on Twitter.com. However, when you're looking at your different friends' data, um, the browser is just automatically rendering them as a tweet feed because it understands that the data looks like that particular format in the same way your browser knows it's an image or a PDF. Again, terrible analogy. Um, the third thing here, uh, just to give you a kind of concrete example, it's not going to look too different than what we have. It's just going to be pulling it from multiple sources. It'd be pulling your Twitter feed, your Reddit feed, your Facebook feed, all in one place. Um, the, the, the third thing here is around, oh, oh that, that you have to go to Facebook or Twitter as a domain. No, you go to Facebook and then you have to search for things. You have to search for rooms or groups. Um, on Twitter, you have to search for topics or hashtags. So um, I would argue it is a, a false uh, misdirection to suggest that domains provided us a sense of, of grouping when really all of the websites that, that people are using have all the subgrouping inside of it. So do, you can just replace like, that. I don't, and I don't have the data, but I have a feeling I just looking at myself and I feel like I'm a pretty advanced user and even still, I think the truth is most people, I, I think a part, so, you know, I am one of the bajillion older internet users who are sad about the fact that blogs haven't, they've disappeared, you know, really. And I think a big, I believe a big part of the reason blogs disappear, there's a lot of reasons, but one of them is, you know, in the old days of the web, it was kind of cool. You had, you know, six or seven blogs that you looked at, maybe a web comic or two, whatever, you know, whatever your jam was. Um, and that's what you did back in the day. But then things centralized more and more and people and, and our brains, I mean, honestly, I look at myself all the time, you know, when I'm screwing around at work and I want to waste time, which is vastly more than I should my brain just defaults to just hitting TW and Twitter opens, you know, and like, I don't look for anything and just whatever is there for my stupid lizard self to see is like what I look like. And I think that's the force 
that is really wrecking us. But interestingly, you know, I love your conception of this kind of portal concept that we'll all have these individualized portals that like log the things that we actually like. And I think that's a beautiful notion. But the truth is a, a bunch of folks have built things like that. And, you know, they have niche communities, but they never really take off in a very big way, which I don't say this because I'm happy about it. I just think it's a reality. Great points. Let me kind of counter a little bit further is uh, one of the applications we have up and running uh, by Marty Malmi, who is the very first contributor to Satoshi on Bitcoin. Yeah, totally. He's part of our team. It's called Iris. And when you um, go to Iris, what it does is you don't have to search for anything. You can just, you can just open it up and it's going to give you that feed because what it's doing is it's looking at all of your friends, then all of your friends' friends, and then all of your friends' friends, and pulling that content in, and then you can customize, of course, how it's ranked, whether it's by, by time or not. So there is a very simple solution to giving you the, the lizard brain feed, which is just your gossip network, your, your friend-of-friends connections. Um, the second piece, which now is leading a little bit back towards this, the blue sky, the Twitter blue sky stuff, which cares more about the human psychology than the technology, is... I should note strongly that does not stop populism in the decentralized web because if there's millions of people still following a particular person, that's going to be one of the things that showed up first in your feed. And that can be really bad, but it still caters to the existing uh, addictive model that exists there. So then the third thing would be, okay, do we want to open up the conversation on how do we fix that? Um, it's decentralized tech does not fix the populism problem. Um, we argue we have a good solution for that, but that's dealing with uh, far cry, uh, a different subject. So I'll leave that kind of open-ended. Wait, what's the populism problem? Um, in the decentralized web, you're still going to have these large curators, and it might be even worse than the existing web, because you're right. On the existing web, you go to Facebook or Twitter, and then you might see top of your feed the most popular person on each of those platforms that you're subscribed to. I'm saying in the decentralized web, there is no Twitter or Facebook to go to. You just open up your laptop. It's, it's, it's your homepage. It's your desktop. Um, and you're seeing a feed of your friends and the friends of friends. And that m might be, depending upon what algorithm you choose of sorting things, you might see the most popular person across your friends of friends. So there, there is some, there's a lot of problems from the psychology standpoint that uh, blockchain, D-Web, um, and privacy-centric apps uh, don't really fix the, the populism problem. It, it potentially just makes it worse. So the populism problem is just like a few people become nodes that a lot of people follow, and some some of those leaders nodes are kind of crazy people is sort of what you're saying um i don't want to describe it as nodes in the minor sense because it's not like they're controlling the the protocol they're yeah just, they're they, just yeah they're, they're a they network the to themselves yeah. a lot of people follow them correct. yeah 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 exactly yeah correct professional welder shana ford used vr training developed by forge fx to hone her skills as a welder the more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, it's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So I just want to get. So I I I want to give an example of of I think a, a concrete example of uh, the decentralized web, which might be uh, illuminating for people. It's it's my favorite one. I give it a lot. And then I'm going to fight with you about payments, but uh, <laughs> argue with me if you, I don't think you're going to argue with the thing I'm about to say though. So tell me if you want to add anything to it, but I don't think you will. Um, so I've been on the internet virtually from like its mainstream beginning, you know, right around when like AOL was hot. I didn't actually, was on AOL, but I went to college then and around that time. And you know, that's when I got on. And so I, I was on from decently early days and uh, it took a while before music showed up on the internet in a useful way. You know, kind of started with Napster, and then there was there was also Yahoo Music was kind of a, a big thing. And then um, you know, Pandora comes along, and this thing everyone sort of forgotten about that was kind of cool for a hot minute was this thing called Groove Shark. Apparently, it's sort of a disastrous company, but uh, they were you know kind of a jam for a minute. And then obviously, um, Spotify kind of dominates, and, and Apple Music shows up somewhere in there too. Um, I have been a part of all of these things uh, over time because I've always been a big music guy. And there is just, you know, God knows how much data about my behavior on all these sites and and, and uh, things I did in all of them to express interest. And the thing that I think about the most is just, you know, all of them. The th- one of the things I find so frustrating about internet music, but it's also great, but it's frustrating is just, you know, having I, you know, go all the way back to cassette tapes, you know, the, it was easier to sort of like remember you had things if they existed physically for you. It's, it's really easy in the digital format, at least for me, to forget about things that I liked. And, my own, and I am completely reliant on these platforms to remember things that I like. Well, you know, I've been through 17 different platforms and none of them have any of the prior record of what I've done. And so God knows how many cool bands that I would still listen to that I've just forgotten about, you know, from my Yahoo Music era or whatever. And uh, so in a decentralized web world, there would be, you know, we would have a set of data about our musical behavior that would exist, you know, kind of in, in the way Mark's saying it on, you know, we'd have it on our own computer. And if we wanted to give, if a new service came along that had better streaming or they did a better job of curating, I think that's kind of what's good about Spotify and they're really good at curating, Um you know, I can opt into it and I can give them my existing data and they can make great use of that and create an experience for me, but I don't have to start from scratch every time. And, but that is the way it is in the world we live in now. And I think that kind of, that kind of sucks, you know, it's too bad. Um, and I will never, I will never find the band that I liked on Yahoo music or groove shark again. Um, so, you know, uh, pour one out for those guys, but, but that's sort of what we're talking about the decentralized web, right? I mean, that's the potential we could have is you don't have to lose track of things like that. Absolutely. Your own personal Google that's running inside of your own computer and pulling things in from the internet. And to kind of kick this back up to the theme of tonight, I'm arguing this is important because it is off chain. If if all of that data, even if it's encrypted or not, is stored to some blockchain, there's a massive privacy leak possibility there. So the majority of use cases that you want on the internet are not leading to this next subject payment related and you want that to be still decentralized you want it to be really fast 
You want it to be privacy preserving and you don't want it in a public ledger for everybody to see unless you explicitly share it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is a thing I've thought about a lot is like, you know, part of the blockchain vision is, you know, you can have all this private data that you actually log in a public way, but it's logged encrypted. And so it's just like, well, it's fine. It's safe because it's encrypted. And I always do just kind of worry like, well, you know, what if one day the mega supercomputers come and just like everyone's secrets are just like, whoops, nothing's encrypted anymore. You know, I mean, who knows if that's really feasible, but it could be, it could be. Feasible. Um, uh, Feasible. Yeah, totally feasible, right? I mean, you know, (laughs) nobody thought humans would fly and they did. That, it, Encrypting a bunch of encrypted, unencrypting a bunch of encrypted data actually feels less weird to me than humans flying, if I imagine a pre-humans flying era. <laughs> so, um, okay, let's fight about payments. Here, here's why I think you're wrong about payments, is you're like, oh, we don't really do that much payments on the internet. It's a small use case. And I'm, no, that's, that's crazy. Everything we're doing on the internet all the time is there's payments happening. It's just that we're not a part of the transaction. We're a product in the transaction. And... Uh, you know, folks are getting paid for our activity, virtually every click and transfer that we make. It's just that we're not in there. And and also, not only that, what's, I think, I, I don't really, there's a lot of people in the cryptocurrency world who are like, if you only had power over your data, we'd all be rich. I'm just like, shut up. No, you wouldn't. But what I do think is true is that a lot of the people, a lot of the eyeballs and the activity and the clicking that happens is it's actually happening because of creative people who are making cool stuff that folks want to see, but they don't actually get anything out of making the cool things other than attention and clout points, which is nice. Um, but in a world in which payments were more fluid and were, and were, um, more public, you know, people who were doing cool stuff online could actually be remunerated more directly for it. And we could cut out, a lot of these platforms, which are contributing a lot, but are getting more than probably their fair share out of it. But I just think that payments are a part of everything we do online. And so let's, let's make payments work a lot better. Oh, I so close. So almost agree with you. I'm going to turn this on your head. And I'm going to see how you react. Okay. Yes. Blockchain does decrease the middleman layer a little bit more. And I do agree with you. Yeah, it's not like you're going to get rich off of your own data unless you are one of those more popular um, media creative creators. So the fundamental problem, though, is that blockchain uses the same debt-based model as both capitalism and socialism combined. It is still based off this idea, if I give you a coin, I lose it, you gain it. Mm -hmm. And the internet is the opposite of that. I upload a photo of a doge and that doge dog goes everywhere it is copied and replicated trillions if not hundreds of trillions of times it is non-zero sum it is not debt-based if you see the doge photo i don't lose it we both see it Mm -hmm. and so if we're going to use blockchain to try and capture the value exchange that is happening on the internet we're still using the same fundamental economic structure that led to all the current problems. So yes, blockchain's a little bit better. I mean, it's maybe like a thousand times better than what we currently have. However, it is still running off of the same math. And I mean, a thousand times better sounds sounds pretty good. Um, But but it's still going to lead to the same type of dystopic outcomes at the end of the day because of 
Pareto efficiency, and I'm more than happy to dive into the economics and what Pareto efficiency is. It's just the direction debt-based models go. Like, a part, you know, I'm a writer, so obviously I have some bias here, but like a part of how I like to think about it is, I mean, look, um, ads have always been a part of the revenue model for publications. It's just that the problem with the internet as we know it now is they're the whole revenue model, and that's, that's the problem. Ads never go away, but they don't have to be so psychopathic and aggressive as they are. And it would be, you know, and, and this is a little bit of a utopian view, but I also don't think it's crazy. If we, if we can imagine a world in which we all just loaded up our browsers with a few bucks every month, you know, I mean, not even that much, you know, very little would, would probably do it. Um, and as we bounced around the Internet, you know, it just kind of streamed out some money to the things that we were looking at. And we, you know, obviously, if we didn't want to pay for anything, we could turn it off. But if, if you... People could people could much more easily paywall stuff, but paywall at a much lower level. You know, it's not it doesn't have to be like twenty dollars a month to ever look at anything. It could be like five cents if you come to my site one time on one day, or even less than that. It could be like a fifth of a cent, right? And um, and and if you had a model in which we were all just kind of streaming money at negligible amounts all the time as we bounce around, and we just kind of reload it from our credit cards, you know, every month or two. Um, one can imagine an internet that's able to do a lot more things, serve a lot more niche communities better, support a lot more creative people with like, you know, middle-class incomes, not getting super rich, but just, you know, kind of getting by with doing the stuff and an internet that has more like cool corners and, and folks who aren't having to, you know, I'm trying not to put this in it, it just make themselves ridiculous just to get as many clicks as possible so they can get that a billionth of a cent for that McDonald's ad as opposed to getting, you know, a half of a cent for a proper visit and a little bit of a read, you know? And so I guess that is a vision that I imagine that, which to me makes the internet work a lot better. It's not the whole internet. There's still going to be a bunch of free parts. There's still going to be a bunch of ad supported parts. You know, hopefully there'll be a bunch of like, you know, kind of think parts that just completely fit your sort of, um, your view of, you know, a rising tide lifts all votes, everything's free, but more things should be paid for. But I also feel like with the technology we have, things could be paid for, but without being like even kind of expensive. And that would be good for everyone. Wholeheartedly agree to be spicy, kind of two points on this. And it kind of comes back to this theme I'm trying to push, which is um, blockchain is a movement towards what is better, but it is bound to the same constraints as the existing models. So it's only temporary and we have to be careful how far we push it before it turns into its own dystopia. So first, we'll already do this. We already pay our ISP. We already pay our internet provider, Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, whoever. We already pay money to stream the internet. It's just that Comcast wants to keep their lion's share of that because they're providing the physical infrastructure, and they don't want to redistribute that back out to the rest of the internet. But bum, 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 point number two, we had a huge problem with the rise of YouTube, rise of Netflix, and the downfall of Hollywood, is that Google ate the lunch of these of these content creators because everybody switched over to Netflix and YouTube and started streaming stuff there. And now Google is taking the lion's share, as you agree. Mm-hmm. And and while I'm agreeing with your point, I'm actually making this this issue that in those models, wherever there is some amount of a trillionth of a cent that's just being streamed out from your browser, um, you're always going to have some clever, enterprising, industrious industrialist that's going to come along and figure out how to capture increasingly larger shares of that, even if they're doing it 
off of um, subsidy at first, you know, uploaded video for free to YouTube. So you now have the internet service providers, AT&T, Comcast, et cetera, realizing, shoot, they have to team up with Hollywood or they're gone. So you have AT&T buying HBO. You have Verizon bundling these different things and you're turning back to um, the stupid, uh, uh, I forget, what is the name? You, you, you know the name, you know, where, where you buy Dish and you get these channels and you have to buy. So if you want yeah. all the channels, because yeah. I have the, the clever in so industrialist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because that model was how um, television from a radio frequency and radio from a radio frequency method uh, worked. But somebody comes along and becomes the, the, the Bell Labs that conglomerates everything and figures out how to take their lion's share. Um, again, I agree with your concept. It's good. It's just from an economic standpoint. When debt is involved, there's always going to be some centralized service through subsidy or not that figures out how to game the system and you get back to monopolies at the end. Yeah, I guess I'm just kind of jaded on that on some level. It's just like, I, you know, I think about this as I'm covering crypto all the time is like I think I write about some cool new thing and I'm just like, well, I can see how this becomes the next like Microsoft behemoth. You know, it sounds nice now, but like. <laughs> can see it all but it's just like i don't know at the very least we can just shake things up for a hot minute and it always feels like every time there's a giant shake up things spread out like just a little bit more i could be getting myself there um listen i want to say if um if anybody wants to join us you can it doesn't really need to be a question you can just like come hop into the conversation this is a small group we have here anyway um just request it and i'll add you um if not we probably won't go on a, a ton longer um i i do want to circle back to you know mark had given this number that his application has a pile of downloads every month um i want to hear more about like what folks are downloading it for who's are those developers or those users who don't even know they're downloading it for some application they're using or, or what what's the deal and like yeah what is it where where is it a, where is your product being used in the internet like what what's that whole story but while, while he's talking about that you know feel free to uh join the conversation just remember we are being recorded but you know low stress there so so yeah mark who's using you guys right now so Mozilla, Tim Draper, Balaje, who's popular on twitter have all backed us um internet archive uses us um, we're working with Twitter Blue Sky for their decentralized proposal. There are several um, smaller companies that have uh, a portion of the traffic, like Hacker Noon back in the day was running a prototype with us. It's not currently up as their particular feature didn't take off. Um, and then there's several decentralized YouTube alternatives, which I don't really want to give the name because there's content I don't necessarily agree with on those sites um, uploaded. Similarly, there's a peer-to-peer -peer version of Reddit, which was getting like 2 million monthly views um, about a year or two ago, but the founder was anonymous and has vanished for the last year. The site's still operating just fine, um, but uh, without um, moderation and some of the human psychology components, yeah, a lot of these decentralized systems can turn into fringe sites. So that's why the Twitter blue sky stuff is what I'm focusing a lot moving forward is, okay, we solved the technical stuff. We have 40 million monthly downloads in the last six months uh, so tw in 2021, we've gotten a quarter billion, bah, bah, billion downloads. And in 2019, we also did a quarter billion downloads. So, so 2019 was a quarter billion downloads. And then this year, in half the year, we've done what we did last year. So those are a couple of the sites that so represent. It, so, the so the reason you're getting those downloads is because people 
add this decentralized, they, they want to use this decentralized YouTube or they want to use this decentralized Reddit. So these are individual users. They download that application, that software, whatever. And that also they need to download your, your stuff as a part of it. So, so it's not like this is 45 million developers. It's, these are, these are end users who need it to run whichever one of these things they're using. Right. Correct. And a useful distinction for those that are technical out there is that um, I've spent a lot of time to make the protocol work directly in the browser without having to download any new software. So correct. Uh, the 40 million monthly active users is existing kind of sites and apps that you can just hit up um, in the browser. So go to iris.to for our encrypted private messenger. Go to notabug.io warning. Um, it, it's a peer-to-peer Reddit that's not moderated. Um, and you can hit up our, our website for some of the other apps out there. And yes, because it runs straight out of the browser, then every single user that's going to that website is also downloading and running the protocol. Okay. Yeah, when you, when you and I talked, we used your uh, Zoom alternative where each of our computers were kind of managing our side of it, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. What's that called? Meet Thing. Meet Thing. Okay, cool. I, I think it's meetthing.space. So All that's right. an encrypted zoom alternative you don't need to download anything you just go to a website and you do your your calls yeah cool that Uh, is how you get adoption that is how you get usability people don't even know these things are decentralized it just looks like the existing web but it's running off of more scalable uh decentralized infrastructure underneath yeah and tell what can you tell us about blue sky uh so we're on twitter right now if folks don't know blue sky is Twitter is kind of like side project to decentralized Twitter. Who knows how serious it is? It sort of seems to reflect kind of more Jack than Twitter. But um, what's yeah? What's up with it? What's your involvement there? What's your, how would you like to see it go? So to summarize, Twitter Blue Sky, um, Twitter and other companies like Reddit are kind of tier two, tier three. They're not Fang, right? Yeah. So they have they have this moment even as massive companies, that they're the underdog and they have to be radical in their choices. Fang is going totally towards lobbying, regulation, um, being content authority, truth, blah, blah, blah. And Twitter and Reddit realize they just can't not keep up with that from an AI perspective or anything else. So I think that the teams at Twitter and Reddit and others realize they have to kind of gang up together (laughs) as the underdogs and try and go this decentralized route. And if it succeeds, they can maybe bypass some of the regulation, um, uh, 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 all the politics there, come under less scrutiny, and then surpass Fang, or they die try. So I think that's kind of the, the, the Twitter blue sky in a nutshell from a, a direction standpoint. And from a technology or conversation standpoint, it's just a bunch of people in the D-Web community that's slowly opening up to others, uh, getting together and saying, how do we design this? The last six, seven years, we've been focused entirely on the technical aspects, but Twitter really cares about the usability from a psychology standpoint. How do you fix fragmented conversation? They, it, they care less about the, the technology. They kind of expect us, our protocols, to have that solved. And now they're saying, how do we fix fringe sites? How do we fix these populism um, problems in the D-Web. And so the idea is you would have this set of data that exists out there in the world. You could download as much of it as you wanted. You could browse and interact with it. There would probably be different experiences for that same data based on 
the kind of experience you want to have. It, it's just more like access to this data set of Twitter-like conversations. Is that sort of the picture? That is the proposal I'm pushing, but what Twitter Blue Sky is has not been defined yet. It's still going through proposal process. There should be news in the next couple of months of um, some announcements coming out of Twitter Blue Sky, but I can't disclose what that is yet. Yeah, no, sure, that's fine. I, I just, it's um, just, it's a good concrete way to give people um, conceptualization. And on some level, I feel like Twitter itself sort of supports the argument that you're making. You know, I'm always frustrated when people talk. I mean, look, I hate Twitter. I wish it had never been created because it's destroyed my brain. Um, but at the same time, I don't know, it's like the main place that I live on the internet for better or for worse. And I get, uh, I get frustrated all the time when people talk about Twitter as a bit of a failure of a company in this space, because like, <laughs> it's, it's probably the most important platform on the internet, just in terms of where the biggest part of the conversation happens. And I could be biased because I'm a journalist, you know, but all the big guns, every, every, all the big guns in the world are on Twitter. Um, and the other big sites have more people, but it's, they don't seem to be as influential. And yet, and Twitter makes money, but it just doesn't make it like Facebook makes it. So I'm always, it just, it's, um, it's just a little bit of a weird thing to me to think of Twitter as like, to me, Twitter seems every bit as important as like Facebook. Um, maybe even more important. It just isn't as monetizable. I don't know. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, but it also, if I could round up, uh, my thoughts, uh, since we're hitting the top of the hour and we still probably want to get some, uh, of the other people on. No one's requested. So we we Um, can, you can just close this out if you want, unless anyone wants to request, you know, really soon. The theme, the thesis that I'm just trying to really push is that while blockchain is important, it's still the old model. It's an improvement, but it's going to lead to the same dystopic results and where it is better is a minority of the web's uh, use case. So it's really important moving forward, if we want to do this right, to focus on scalability, to focus on the things that people are doing all the time, and winning people over from an adoption standpoint there. And then payments will be easy. Mm-hmm. By starting with payments, it's, fa- it's, it's flashy, it's shiny, um, but it doesn't represent the end game. All right. Fair. Yeah. I still, I still would like to hear you have this conversation, uh, with Juan Benet. Maybe I'll try to make that happen at some point. Um, cause I feel like that would be, he's better at this than I am, but, uh, but this has been great. Uh, thanks a ton for doing it. So, um, folks should give a try to the, um, zoom alternative, uh, that gun has built, but also folks should just make phone calls again because you know what? They were fine. Um, anyway, uh, thanks everyone for being here tonight. Um, uh, you can check out prior conversations on the SpaceCast podcast network. Um, SpaceCast will share this later. Uh, this will be up there if you want to re-listen to it. Also, there's some good parallels to past conversations I've had. So go back, go take a look at past light bulb talks on there. Um, the next conversation I have planned to have live on Twitter Spaces is next Tuesday um, with Brayton, Brayton Williams of Boost VC. Boost VC is a cool crypto-based uh, investment firm uh, whose thesis is bringing the science fiction future into the real world, which is pretty fun. And they really are focused on that. And they have a, a good eye for really interesting founders out there. So I'm looking forward to talking to Brayton. And I can- uh, 
totally recommend. I can totally recommend because he's our uh, earliest investor. Oh so. yeah, yeah. Those, <laughs> those guys are those guys are far are far seen. Um, so so yeah. So uh, thanks, Mark, and thanks everyone who's been here. And uh, you know, we'll see you all on Twitter soon. 